That is the argument of Hebrews. That's the heart of things. He's laid it all out for you. Christ is better than the prophets. Christ is better than the angels. Christ is better than Moses. Christ is better, provides a better rest than Joshua did. Christ is a better priest. Christ offers a better sacrifice. Christ serves in a better sanctuary. And Christ offers a better atonement for sins and therefore a better covenant. He has spent ten chapters laying all that out. He's come in at many different angles. Now we come to the last section, Roman numeral five, which is this, a call to faith and perseverance. Now, what are you going to do with that? If Christ is truly the better object of your faith to all other objects, what will you do with that? There's one giant question the Bible is asking you. The first thing that the Bible is teaching you is who is God and how can I know Him? That's the major thing that the Bible is teaching you. Everything that the Bible is teaching you falls under that umbrella. Who is God and how can I know Him? It then follows up with this big, big, big question. Who are you going to bow down to and who are you going to serve? Once you realize who God is and how you can know Him, what are you going to do with that? Will you go back to your rituals? Will you go back to your works? Will you go back to the law? Will you go back to your obedience? Will you go back to your self-righteousness? Will you go back to, well, at least I'm not as bad as that person? Will you go back to your job, your family? your TV shows, your entertainment, your money, your life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness dream, the desire to be comfortable. We've got all these idols and gods in our life. And now that it's been clearly laid out that Christ is better because of those seven things about Christ, that He is the creator and sustainer of all things, that He is makes atonement for sins because he is in the exact representation of God, the radiance of God's glory. And he sits at the right hand of God. What are you going to do with that? Now, I know that everybody here has made the decision. Well, I assume because this is a huge commitment if you haven't. (laughs) But Christ still needs to reign. And we know how quickly we can dethrone him. And so that's where he starts here. Verse 19 of chapter 10. Therefore, therefore in light of the first 10 chapters, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the sanctuary by the blood of Jesus Christ, by the fresh and living way that he inaugurated for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and the assurance that faith brings, because we have had our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water and let us hold unwaveringly to the hope that we confess for the one who made the promises is trustworthy 
And let us take thought of how to spur one another on to love and good works, not abandoning our own meetings, as some are in the habit of doing, but encourage each other, and even more so because you see the day drawing near. So he's going to make two primary points here. First, the only worthy object of our faith is Christ, because he's the only one that can make us righteous. And two, faith is demonstrated by perseverance. The only one that's truly worthy of our faith is Christ, because He's the only one that truly perfects us. And two, the true faith is demonstrated in perseverance. That's where we're going now. We must persevere. If Christ persevered unto death, then our lives belong to Him. And we must persevere in our life. Because it's not rituals that He desires. It's your life that He desires. That's how you please God. So Christ is the only one worthy of our faith because He's the only one who can make us righteous and bring us into heaven. And only faith can only be truly demonstrated in perseverance. So 19 through 21 makes this point. First, the author starts by giving two reasons that we are able to draw near to God. Each one begins with the word since. Since this and since this. The first reason is that we can have confidence to enter the sanctuary of heaven because of the righteous blood of Jesus has purified us, making us right before God so that we do not have to fear and condemnation anymore. We have access to God because of Christ's blood. Therefore, we have hope and not fear. This is the first reason we can draw near to God. You are not able to come to God without Christ. But because Christ has come, we can draw near to God because of His sacrifice. And therefore, we can be made perfect without fear. The second reason that we have a great high priest who is perfected and lives forever is ready to deal with us in compassion. The other reason is because we have a high priest who fills with compassion. And that goes back to Hebrews 4. We have a high priest who is compassionate and ready to give us mercy. So, why is it that we can draw near to God? Because in the first testament, if you drew near to God, He killed you. Because you were a sinner and you deserved it. But now that Christ has died for all sins and met the justice of God and Christ is in you, now you can draw near to God without fear of death. Because you're not going to die because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And two, you don't have to come to this God with fear that He will punish you because He's our King. We also now know that Christ is also our High Priest. And he knows what it's like to be tempted along all points of the scale without sin. Therefore, he is ready to deal with us compassionately, with mercy, ready to give us grace abundantly. How sick and twisted is God to die for every sin that you're ever going to commit just to reject you now when you actually commit the sin? Isn't that how we live sometimes? We know that Christ died for all of our sins and knew them all. But when we commit this sin, we think He's going to reject us and we're not worthy and He can never use us again. No, that's not, we don't serve a sick, twisted God. 
We serve a God who died on the cross once and for all, for all your sins, and now that you're alive, and now that you're in desperate need of that forgiveness, you can boldly and confidently go to the throne without fear. That's why you can draw near to God. Because of Christ as your King, who conquered death, and met the requirements of the law, and Christ your High Priest, who's ready to mediate on your behalf. That's why Christ had to be King and Priest, God and man. There is no other being in the universe that's both. Verse 22, because of these two truths, we are encouraged to do three things. Verse 22, And so, now that we know those two things, let us draw near with a sincere heart and the assurance that faith brings, because we have had our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in the pure water. The first is to draw near to God with a sincere heart and assurance that will be received. So, you can draw close to God because He's your King that conquered sin and He's your High Priest that will give you compassion. So, now that you draw near, try to make your life match what He has made you as much as possible. Works does not save you. Works is not how you earn your entrance into heaven. But now you have a God who lives in you, who met the requirements of the law. And unlike the law that gave you no power to change, you have the Holy Spirit that's carved into your heart and can actually transform and renew you and make you look like Christ in obedience. So as you draw near to God... Make every effort to submit to the Holy Spirit's voice. Listen to it. Obey it so that your life is transformed and begins to match the life of Christ as much as possible when you draw near to Him. Your obedience does not save you. Your obedience does not win God's approval. But our obedience is something we should desire because we love God. And we want to be as much as we can like Him. You see little kids. I can't... My, my little daughters, I mean... The, the, it's so interesting. Times where I, like, I've been leaning up against the counter. And I'm leaning up a counter a certain way, eating an apple. And I'll literally watch my little daughter, who's only been walking for a few months... And she'll like get up next to the counter and she'll look at me and kind of lean up against the counter exactly like I am and try to get her hands in the exact position and eat the apple like I am and just grin at me and smile. How many times I've been sitting down reading a book and my older daughter Natasha, five years old, comes up and sits next to me and gets up to me and kind of watches and holds the book exactly in the same way and looks through it. I'm working on my laptop and my other daughter gets her little leapfrog laptop and sits down and does the same thing. Why they emulate you? Because they want to be like you. And they look at you with a smile and they're hoping that you are pleased and smile back. That is not the behavior of someone who fears me and is trying to do what they expect because they're afraid of the horrible beating that's coming. We do not obey God because we're trying to earn His approval and escape judgment in order to get to heaven. 
we obey God because we so desperately want to be like Him. Because He is so righteous. Because He is so loving. Because He is so awesome. Because there is so much life in Him. And we want to be like Him. And we want Him to be proud of us, to be pleased with us. Not so that we'll earn our way into heaven, but because we just want to be like Him. And that's what He's saying. Make every effort to make your heart sincere. Not going through rituals, not going through motions, not just obeying, but because you really sincerely want to love God and look like Him. And John uses language big time in his gospel and his epistle that the children look like their father. And Jesus says, you need to have faith like a child because children want nothing more than to please their parents. And that's what we have. So do not reduce your relationship with Christ back into rituals and desire to earn his favor through your works. You obey him because you can't help but want to give everything back to him. And you want to be like him. That's what we're called to. That's the first way that we're to come to him. Verse 23. And let us hold unwaveringly to the hope that we confess. For the one who made the promise is trustworthy. The second thing we are encouraged to do is to hold unwaveringly to the hope we confess. Now remember, confession is not just, I believe Jesus is God and He died on the cross. That's facts. Confession is, I believe that He is the only true Son of God. And that only through His death and resurrection can I be saved. Therefore, I am utterly and completely dependent upon Him for my salvation. That's trust and faith. Confession is not a recitation of facts. Confession is knowing the true essence of who God is, or who Christ is and what He has done. And if you truly understand who He is and what He's done, then you truly understand how completely dependent you are on Him. And that's trust and faith. Confession is trust, not facts. There are too many people who have grown up in the church and mistakenly understood that confessing Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior is just believing a certain truth. But when the Bible talks about confession, it always puts in the context of believe. And believe is always in the Greek and Hebrew meaning know. To know somebody intimately. It's the same word used when Adam knew his wife and produced a son. When Abraham knew his wife. It's an intimate knowing. And that's confession. And so it's confessing who Jesus is according to Hebrews. And then knowing that if He's the only one who truly met the requirements of the law, then only through Him can you have any hope of life, which means total surrender, total trust, total dependency on His death and resurrection, and giving your life over. Taking up your cross and crucifying your will and your desires and surrendering to Him. Make every effort to persevere that confession, the hope Because if He truly has done that for you, then you have hope unlike anybody else ever has. The two best ways to witness to people in Jehovah's Witness and Mormonism and Islam and that kind of stuff is to use these theological arguments that Hebrews is using. 
The second way is to talk about the hope that you have with a relationship with God in a very powerful experiential way because they don't have that hope. They don't have that contentment. They don't have that joy. They're happy. They have fun. They can have a peace, but not that one that passes all understanding goes through all circumstances and that contentment and satisfaction that cosmically and eternally everything will be okay. And so we bring to people the argument as well as the hope. And that's what he's saying. Cling to that perseverance is what true believers do. If you truly have hope, you will truly persevere. And the only way you can truly have hope is if you truly depend on who Christ is. If you're going to your works and your ritual, that doesn't give you hope. Because when you go to your rituals and the certain way that you pray and the certain way you do things and you keep thinking that you've got to earn God's love because somehow He won't forgive this sin because you've done it an umpteenth time again, then that doesn't fill you with hope. It leaves you depressed and feeling like God can never use you. But if you know who He really truly is and what He truly has accomplished and you cling to that confession, it makes you completely dependent on Him because you know that there is no other hope that you have. And that hope then allows you to keep persevering. That hope is when you're really in the trials and the suffering, when you're in the sin again, you cling to that experiential moment of when God said to you, I wanted to redeem you. My wife often tells a story where she felt like she was just, she basically was riding her motorcycle one day and said, why me, God? I have sinned so many times. Why have you forgiven me? And God's response was, because I wanted to redeem you. And that's a powerful moment in her life. And when she's in the trenches and feels like God doesn't love her anymore because she's sinned again, that's a moment she holds on to. Because it wasn't her works that gave her that hope. It was that voice from God that gave her that hope. And that's what you persevere. If you truly understand who God is, that will give you hope. Because that's what you're truly depending on. And that's what allows you to persevere. Not your works and perseverance gives you faith and earns you salvation. But truly understanding who Christ is and what he's done gives you hope, which allows you to persevere. And that's what James meant. Works does not save you, but true salvation will produce fruit. And that's the second thing that we do when we draw near to him. Number three, the third thing that we are encouraged to do is to keep encouraging other believers to love and do good works now that we have cleansed through the blood of Christ. No Christian can be saved outside the church. We are not an island in our faith. Yes, you no longer need teachers. You no longer need a mediator. You no longer need a patriarch that you're completely dependent upon to know God. But you cannot be sanctified without the believers. Iron sharpens iron as one man sharpens another. And so he says, do not give up gathering together as some have been in the habit of. Some have walked away from the faith. Some have said, I love Jesus, but the church, I could do without it. Yes, the church is full of of screwed up people. And the minute you join, you're screwing it all up. (laughs) And the minute you leave and say, I don't need the church because it's screwed up, then you've left the church a little less screwed up when you leave. And so the reality is, yes, but that's why we need to encourage each other. 
And so this is the third thing he says. If we truly understand that we're hopeless without Christ because he's our true object of faith, then we need to encourage each other. Paul says in Corinthians, I preach the gospel to those who are saved. We need to keep hearing it. We need to keep reminding it. There's another layer to the oven, the onion that needs to be peeled back every single moment in our life. We need to be reminded of it. I remember, what was it, just last Sunday, one of the guys up on the the stage in our church here at Linworth said, you're probably getting tired, it was Nick, so you're probably getting tired that we constantly keep saying the application is, preach the gospel more and more, and you need more gospel. And he's like, but that's the truth. And it is. That's what the gospel, that's what Hebrews is saying. We need to encourage each other. And we talked about that application before. Some people who are really screwed up and thinking God won't love them anymore need to be reminded of Christ's finished work. Some people need to be encouraged to go deeper into the Word of God and somebody come along them sides and actually help them disciple. They've been a Christian their entire life. They understand the gospel, but nobody's come along their side and really discipled them and taught them how to understand the theology of the Bible. Some people need to be reminded that Christ is better than that sin or idol that they're so attracted to. And they need somebody who is going to become a fence in their life and help guard them or protect them from that. We all need encouragement in different ways, but we all need it. And no matter how sometimes you think those people at church drive me nuts, or that's screwed up, or they, oh, if I was up on the stage, I would do it a little bit better. You still cannot do it without the church. And so we come knowing that we want our heart to match Christ's heart. We come holding on to the hope that's the only thing that drives us forward. And we come encouraging each other. We want to please God. We want to hold on to that hope. And we want to hold on it together. Because it's the only way we can do it. Verse 26. For if we deliberately keep on sinning after receiving the knowledge of the truth, no further sacrifice for sins is left for us but only a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fury and fire that will consume God's enemies. Deliberately. This is the idea of saying the deliberate sin should be put in the context of the wilderness generation. I know some of us feel like we keep deliberately sinning. There's sometimes I know, because the first time I read this thing, I'm like, oh my gosh, I totally am without hope. Because there are sins that I know that I, I'm, it's a sin as I'm doing it. And I think, well, that was kind of a little deliberate, so that means I have no hope. But that's not the point. The point is the context of the wilderness generation. The point is, I don't care. It's what the First Testament called a high-handed sin. If you become before that and say, well, if I'm saved by grace, then let's sin all the more. Or, hey, if I'm getting into heaven through Christ's sacrifice, well, then it doesn't matter what kind of a life that I live. What happens in the body stays in the body. That's what a lot of the First Testament people said, the Gnostics specifically. Or you know what? I just don't really care. I just came to Jesus for Him to be my Savior, but Lordship, nah. I'll get to that when I'm 80 years old. If that's your heart attitude, then all you have is a fearful expectation of God's wrath. Because that's not true salvation. Someone who does not cling to the cross and hopes to be cleansed does not truly have the cross. Now, you and I cannot look at people's lives and judge and condemn them. 
But we can look at people's life and say, I don't see the fruit, therefore you need more gospel. I'm not condemning you. I'm not judging you. I'm not casting you out. But you need more gospel. And guess what? I need you to give me more gospel too. And so understand that we all need it. Now he knows he quotes Isaiah 26. Nowhere are believers ever, 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 ever called the enemies of God. And yet he says, if you deliberately sin, you are an enemy of God and all you expect is fire. Fire is a symbol of judgment, being condemned, burning in the fire, hell. And you are an enemy if you say, forget that, I'm just going to keep doing what I want. Follow your heart, just do it, have it your way. I, universe. Nowhere believers ever called enemies. Believers are told, therefore, there is no condemnation. So he's not talking about people who are saved. He's talking about people who know the gospel, somehow have gone towards it, but are saying, I don't want it. And we've already talked about this with Romans 6. How much greater if people who violated the first law were put to death based on two or three witnesses, how much greater punishment do you think the person deserves who is contempt for the Son of God and profanes the blood of the covenant that made him holy and insults the Spirit of grace? Once again, if you were put to physical death for violating the law, and the law could only atone for sins in a physical level, then how much more will you be punished for violating the one who cleansed your sins on an eternal level? And have contempt. Not just disobey, but you have contempt. That's a strong, vile word for somebody. It's one thing to not like somebody. It's another thing to hurt somebody. It's another thing to have contempt for somebody. For the Son of God profanes the blood. You profane the blood. You've made it not holy. You insult the Spirit of grace. For we know that the one who said vengeance is mine will repay. And again the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Nowhere does God ever say, I will pour out my vengeance on you as believers. Nowhere does God say it's a terrible, fearful thing for you believers to fall into my hands. The opposite. You can boldly and confidently go to the throne of grace knowing that you will receive mercy and compassion. Notice this complete contrast. He's not talking about people who are saved and losing their salvation. But at the same time, he's talking about people who know the truths of God. Because that's why you cannot profane and have contempt for something that you don't understand. So he's talking about people who know the truth, they know the gospel, but they've said, I don't care. They're the enemies of God. They are in the fury of wrath. They're the one that God will have vengeance on. And here's the idea. I said this individually to somebody last week. You're coming up to the door of salvation. And as long as you haven't walked through that door of salvation, then you're in danger of falling into the hands of God and His wrath and judgment. We know that. The minute you walk through that door of salvation, you are sealed in the Holy Spirit. And there is nothing that can take you out of the hands of God. There are many, many people who walked right up to the door and they have not walked in. And they're convinced because they've confessed facts and they know the door well, they're saved. But because they have not walked in, they're in danger of falling away and forsaking Christ and falling in the hands of an angry God and being an enemy of God. But the minute you walk through that door, you are no longer an enemy. You are no longer condemned. You are sealed in the Holy Spirit. Nothing can separate you from God. 
And he will finish the work that he has begun in you. Because you can boldly and confidently go to the throne of God for grace and mercy. Does that make sense? Do not confuse being at the door with actually walking through it. Verse 32. But remember the former days when you endured harsh conflict of suffering after you were enlightened. At times... You publicly exposed the abuse and afflictions, and at other times you came to share with the others who were treated in that way. For in that fact you shared the sufferings of those in prison, and you accepted the confiscation of your belongings with joy, because you knew that you were certainly had better and lasting possessions. Now, some of you, once again, were tempted to begin to think, Oh my gosh, what if that's me? What if I haven't walked to the door? What if I don't have assurance? He... Just like the previous warning passage, he immediately follows up with saying, but not so with you. What do you hold on as your confidence? One, your confession gives you confidence that you're truly saved. And two, the testimony of the Holy Spirit. If you're worried, if you're that person, you're most likely not that person. And if you're worried of that person, can you think of back times that you did respond to the Holy Spirit? Were there times that you sinned and the Holy Spirit totally convicted you and you felt shame and you felt guilt and you made every effort to approach the throne and confess it and God met you there in a very real physical kind of way or sometimes in an emotional way? Can you think of the times that you willingly sacrificed for people knowing that you weren't going to get anything gained? Can you think of the times that you read the Word of God and something became exciting to you and you wanted to desperately share it with other people? Those are the things that you remember. Those are the things you hold on to. When you're beginning to doubt your faith, you're beginning to have a lack of assurance, you go back to the things that you believe about God. You go back to the Bible. You go back to your experiences with Christ. You go back to the times that you did respond, the times that you did confess, the time that you actually... You know, it used to be that somebody had to point their finger in my face and really convince me of my sin. Now I've gotten to the point that in this area of my life, I don't need somebody to point their finger in their face. I automatically feel guilt on my own, and I want to do something about it. Sanctification is not about how quickly you get over something, which that's definitely a good thing. But it's whether you sinned less this time than last time. You confessed more quickly this time than last time. You went longer this time before you sinned again. You confessed it in the light to other people a little bit quicker this time than last time. You actually try to make sacrifices in your life to make things right in somebody's life, to pay them back how you hurt them more this time than last time. You actually want to read your Bible and sacrifice other things more this time. I've got memories of driving by this woman every day and she's walking with a cane and all that kind of stuff coming up the bus stop and I can think of a million reasons why I can't stop and pick her up. And then that, and that conviction was huge. Because I'm in the middle of teaching First John, and John's all about if you see your neighbor in need and you pass them by, you're a horrible, evil person. I'm like, oh my gosh. But my time was so precious. And that one time, I finally responded and said, I don't care, I'm going to stop. And every day, it just happened to be that I saw her. And it was incredible moments picking her up. And it was only one couple blocks because we live in the same complex. But that was an evidence because for a while I ignored it, but then as an introvert, I overcame that and invited somebody in the front seat with my car, which is like really weird, that I don't know, and God bless that. And those are moments I hold on to. I respond to the Holy Spirit when before I wasn't. 
And those are the moments you hold on to. This is what he's encouraging. Remember those days. Remember those times. Remember that you suffered and you did not give up your faith. Remember the fact that you held on your confession. Because you knew that certainly that you had better and lasting possessions. The materialism of America and the comfort and the pleasure is nothing compared to what Christ has offered you for all eternity. Do not let those things distract you. And that's going to take us to chapter 11. Because chapter 11 is going to be full of examples of people who are willing to give up the earthly for the greater. So do not throw away your confidence, because it was a great reward. For you need endurance in order to do God's will, and so receive what is promised. For just a little longer, he who is coming will arrive and not delay, but my righteous one will live by faith. And if he shrinks back, I take no pleasure in him. But he, we are not among those who shrink back and thus perish, but are among those who have faith and persevere in souls. You have a reward. This is what Paul said. Your life should be centered on Christ and heaven-oriented. You should be centering on the object of Christ as the greatest object of your faith and encouragement and confidence before God. The only thing that will make you approved to God. That's what your life revolves around. And then that orients you towards the hope of heaven and the reward that God has for you that's much greater than anything in this world could ever offer you. Therefore, when suffering and persecution comes, you can willingly and with pleasure hold on to the hope that you have because you know the object of Christ and His salvation and that reward is far greater than anything in the world can offer. Just like Christ gave up the kingdoms of the world to go to the cross because the suffering was worth it for the hope that was held out for Him. That's what we hold on to. If Christ can do it and He's in you, then you submitting to Him means that you can do it too. And the one that submits will persevere. Period. Because it's not you. It's Christ in you. And that's what he's trying to encourage you. Forget the warning passages now. And hold on to that reward. And hold on to that faith. Because ultimately what it comes down to is not that you're saved by works and not that you please God through your works, but the righteous will live by faith. The righteous will live by faith. That's quoted four times. We're going to close with this. It's quoted four times in the Bible. The first place is Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. And in that Habakkuk is, if you were here with Linworth, we did that series. Habakkuk says there's an evil, horrible, evil injustice in the world. Why God? And God says, don't worry, I'm dealing with it. I'm going to send the Babylonians. And Habakkuk is like, what? You're going to send the evil people to punish an evil people? I wanted, when I meant to do something about it, I meant you, a righteous God, do something about it. And God says, don't worry, I'll punish the Babylonians too. Well, why are you going to use them, God? Because I said so. And Habakkuk ends with this amazing passage, though everything stinks, everything's falling apart, though all the fig trees are falling off, there's no crops, there's no life, everything's dying, basically utter post-apocalyptic, final great depression, no hope in life whatsoever picture, I will trust in the Lord, because He is my reward, He is my anchor. And in chapter 2, he says this. As he's holding on, all this stuff is going on, he says, but the righteous will live by faith. And in the back, he emphasizes righteousness, living, and faith. 
the only way that you can truly live is if you're righteous. And the only way you can be righteous is if you have faith. Because it's not my works. It's not my life. It's not my obedience. It's not that I'm better than those guys over there. It's that I have faith in God and that makes me righteous. Therefore, I will live even though everything in my life looks like I'm not going to. And that's what Habakkuk holds on to. Romans 1, chapter 17. Romans 1, chapter 17 comes along and quotes the same passage and says this, the righteous will live by faith. And he emphasizes the word righteousness. The only way you can be righteous is by faith. And that's the whole point of Romans. It's faith, faith, faith. We are made righteous by our faith. And he uses Abraham as an example. The only way you can be righteous is faith. Righteousness, righteous, that is what we are. That's what we have become. And that's why he goes in Romans chapter 8, that the righteous requirements of the law are met in us through Christ who met the righteous requirements of the law. We are made righteous by Christ. He emphasizes righteousness. Galatians 3, chapter 11, comes along and uses the same verse, quotation. In Galatians 3, 11, he emphasizes live. You are not truly living under the Jewish laws. That's not truly giving you life and hope and contentment. If you really want to truly have shalom, and shalom means peace, and may you be at peace with God, with each other, with creation, and with your purpose in life so you can truly have contentment and joy. If you want that kind of living, that kind of life, the only way you can have that is if you're righteous, which only comes by faith. That's the only way you can truly live. And then we come to Hebrews, chapter 10, verse 38. And it is emphasizing faith. Faith is the only hope you have. It's not rituals. It's not sacrifice. It's not the law. All you have is faith. If the law can't perfect you, then all you have is faith. My righteous people will live by faith. The only way you can be righteous is if you have faith. And that's how you'll live. That's what you hold on to. And so he ends here by encouraging you to take everything of who Christ is, how truly worthy he is of your faith and devotion, how truly worthy he is of you bowing down and worshiping him, and make every single effort to appreciate him so that you'll surrender. Because only when you throw everything that you have, your education, your skills, your obedience, your rituals, your good looks, out the window and kill every hope, dream, will, and desire in you and say, I need you. And you know what? I don't even want to crucify myself. So I need you to crucify myself. Every single second through the Holy Spirit and hold on to that desperately, will that allow you to begin to draw closer to God? And that's what we hold on. Every moment, sometimes the best thing we can say is, God help us. So they said the men's conference, God help us, God help me, God help me. Why? Because I so desperately want to be like you, God. Because I can think of nothing better than to emulate you And I'm hoping that you'll say, well done, a good faithful servant. Not because of how amazing I am in my works, but because I wanted you so badly. And then when I feel discouraged, and I feel empty, and I feel like I'm not righteous because I'm not, 
then I keep looking back to the fact that I do believe, I do hold on to them. And I haven't always done that perfectly. But even repentance is obedience. And I hold on to the fact that I'm not what I ought to be, but I'm not what I used to be. Then I know that I'm righteous because I have faith. And therefore I'll live with Him in the heavenly sanctuary for all eternity. That's Christianity. And without that, the Christian life is impossible to live. Period. Because the demands are too high. Only through Christ. So who are you going to bow down to? And who are you going to worship? Not just in a church sense, but in how you use your time and efforts and money at sense. Lord, Yahweh, you are awesome. Give us the ability and the desire to make you Lord and Savior of our life. Not because we have to, but because we have truly appreciated you more than we did just yesterday. Those who have been forgiven of much, love much. And I pray that you continue to expose our sin and how wretched we truly are so that we will cling to you even more, not in our works, not in our efforts and skill and intelligence, but because we know we are so hopeless without you that we throw ourselves at your feet, knowing that that action, that faith, that desire is what makes us righteous. Because that's what allows us to draw close to you, enter into your presence, and receive your blood, receive your forgiveness, and allow the Holy Spirit to continue to transform us so that we can begin to look at like you, to have a more sincere heart, to better understand you, to better love you, to better please you. Because we love you, not because we have to. I pray that you give us that desire, that ability, that encouragement, that perseverance. In Jesus' name, amen.